Young described Marx's frenzied response, calling him a hater of all Aboriginals, shooting every native in sight, including the people working on the station run by her and her husband. From today's stories, this is The Marks Murdered, a story of murder and mayhem told over several episodes by myself, Greg, and by Peter. If you haven't listened to this series from episode one, we suggest you stop listening now and go back to the very beginning. Also a warning, this series of podcasts discusses the murders of Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. It contains the names of Aboriginal people who have died. Whilst quoting original historical material, this series also contains racist language, some language that would be seen as inappropriate today, and historical ideas that are offensive. Previously on The Marks Murders, it's 1847, about 50 kilometres northwest of modern-day Gundawindi. Marks was a splendid shot, and the blacks were very much afraid of him. And, from information I obtained from the Bebo people, they had long been watching to kill him. They stole up and killed the boy, and having done so, cut him to pieces with their tomahawks and placed the remains all along the log where he had been seated. Young described Marx's frenzied response, calling him a hater of all Aboriginals, shooting every native in sight. I've always thought that much depended upon the impression made upon the blacks by the first white men they met, and that the ancient stock keepers and hut keepers were far too ready to use their firearms rather than try to conciliate them. Not waiting until morning, they fired into the camp and the only one that was killed was a black gin which had been shepherding for Mr Morris. The murder of Mark's son and the subsequent murders of Aboriginal people around the modern-day town of Gundawindi started in 1847. We want to tell the truth of what happened. To do this, we need to understand the social context of the time. In previous episodes, we've looked at squatting in general to understand the big picture of the occupation of inland Australia by Europeans. We did this by following the life and times of John Brown. We've also looked at the experiences of three squatters on the McIntyre, Jonathan Young, Captain Scott and Tinker Campbell. We've also looked into the story of Margaret Young. Margaret and her husband Jonathan lived close to Mr Marks when the murders occurred. Her journal describing that period is an important but flawed document. This is the fifth episode in our series of truth-telling. In the first episode, we gave a brief outline of the murders committed by Mr Marks. But in every story I've read about it, there's no backstory about him. I was determined to find out about his life leading up to the murders so that this might give some explanation as to why he acted as he did. What was his motivation for all these murders? I also wanted to find out what Mr Marks was like as a squatter. 
How did he compare to those other squatters we've already looked into? Yep, context is so important in understanding the murders, but how'd you go about this? Well, rather than looking for Mr Marks in history books, I decided I'd take a totally different approach. In recent years, I've got pretty good at creating life stories of my ancestors using a genealogical approach, so I decided to create a family tree for the Marks family. I started with very limited information. I only knew his name, James Mark, or Marks, depending on who told the story, and that he had a son who was murdered by the Aboriginals on the 18th of September, 1847. The son, John, was about 10 years old. So I started a family tree in the software that I use with just this limited amount of information and started looking into ancestry databases for births, deaths, marriages, immigration records, all that sort of stuff. How did you go? There are a lot of dead ends. I mean, James Marks is not a very distinctive name. It appears in many birth and death records. But I now know James' full story and that of his family. The key to making progress was finding one immigration record. I've checked and cross-checked it against other information. I'm confident I've got it right. Okay, so what did the immigration record say and how do you know it was the right Mr Mark? Mm, The immigration record said that a James Mark and family arrived in Australia in 1837 on a ship called the Midlothian. Then I found several newspaper reports recalling the experiences of the Midlothian immigrants. Here's a typical version. It's a 1928 newspaper story recalling the Midlothian immigrants. The report says... John Mark had been one of the Midlothian immigrants. All of that ship's party belonged to Skye, with the exception of Mark and another man named Cohen, who were lowland shepherds, but at that time living in Skye. An experience of Mark's at New England was a dreadful one. Two of his little boys, aged 10 and 8 years respectively, were one day, as usual, minding a flock of their father's sheep. On this day, the sheep came running home in a fright and the children were not to be seen. The father hastily saddled his horse and went to search. Judge of his feelings when he came across the skull and some bones of one of his boys, while part of the remains of the other were hanging partly roasted in a tree. They had been killed and partly eaten by the blacks. The father took dreadful revenge. It is said that for many long years afterwards, he would not spare any Aborigine that came across his track. The authorities were for years on the watch in an endeavour to catch him. It is a gruesome story, but happily such things did not happen often. We'll explore the veracity of all parts of that story in a later episode. But clearly, the Mr Marks in the Midlothian story must be the Mr Marks that James Watts refers to. Yep, so what's James' story? I'll go through his life chronologically, up to the date when the murders start. Okay, so where and when was James Marks born? Well, for starters, his name is James Chisholm Mark, without an S. Many reports of these murders refer to him as James Marks, plural, and that's wrong. 
He was born in about 1809 in the lowlands of Scotland, in Gullishills. He married Mary Burgess from Peebles in 1829. Mary was born in 1810 in Estelmoor in Dumfriesshire. They had two sons there, George, born 1831, and William, born 1833. Then they moved to the Isle of Skye. There they had a third son, John, born in 1836 at Schneisnort. Now, I'm sure I haven't pronounced that correctly, and apologies to the Scots. I haven't been able to find out why they moved to the Highlands, because times weren't good on the Isle of Skye at that time. The Highland clearances were underway. Well, I've heard about the Highland clearances, but what happened then? The Highland clearances were the evictions of a significant number of tenants in the Scottish Highlands, mostly in a period from about 1750 to 1860. Prior to the clearances, land was owned either by English lords or clan leaders. The vast number of peasants didn't own any land. They had to rent a small block which was called a croft. Hence these peasants were called crofters. In the first phase, the clearances resulted from agricultural improvements driven by the need for the landholders to increase their income. Many of the landlorders had uh, crippling debts and uh, bankruptcy was driving their change. Especially in the north and west of the Highlands, crofters' paddocks were usually replaced by large-scale pastoral fields stocked with sheep on which much higher rents were paid, with the displaced tenants getting alternative tenancies in newly created crofting communities, where they were expected to be employed in industries such as fishing or quarrying or the kelp industry. The second phase, from about 1820 to 1860, involved overcrowded crofting communities from the first phase that had lost the means of support to support themselves through famine and the collapse of the industries that they had relied on, such as the kelp trade, as well as continuing population growth. This is when assisted passages became common, when landlords paid the fares of their tenants to emigrate. Tenants who were selected for this had in practical times little choice but to emigrate, there was no future there for them. The Highland potato famine struck towards the end of this period, giving greater urgency for the process. Tens of thousands of Highland crofters emigrated to America, Canada, New Zealand and Australia. Many Australians today are descended from Highland clearance immigrants. One of my own great-great-grandfathers, Murdoch Nicholson, emigrated from the Isle of Skye in 1857. What can you tell us about assisted passages? At the time, the economies of both the United Kingdom and Australia offered an uh, opportunity for a mutually beneficial exchange. The Industrial Revolution caused the loss of working-class jobs in England and crofter survival in Scotland. At the same time, Australia needed to increase its working-class population. An example was that squatters needed lots of shepherds. The answer was to increase immigration to Australia from the United Kingdom. However, many poor workers and crofters simply couldn't afford to pay the ship fare for the long ocean voyage. To solve this problem, government and private schemes were established to pay ship's passage for those who couldn't afford it. A government scheme established in 1830 used funds from the sale of colonial land in Australia to provide passage for poorer immigrants. One estimate is that 58,000 immigrants came to Australia through assisted migrant passage schemes between 1815 and 1840. Under the Bounty Scheme, 
Esquadra, who wanted workers, paid the emigrants passages. On arrival, these workers were examined by a board, and if the board was satisfied, the squatter was issued with a certificate entitling him to claim the bounty money back from the government. Okay. Uh, so given that James and his family ended up in Australia, I assume that he undertook an assisted passage from Scotland. He did indeed. James and his family left the Isle of Skye on the Midlothian. It left the small port of Loch Schneisnot on the Isle of Skye on the 8th of August 1837. This was the third of 20 ships in the Government Assisted Migration Scheme. These ships gave assisted passage to 4,000 Scots between 1837 and 1840. The second ship, the William Nicol, had arrived in Sydney just a week before the Midlothian. The Midlothian carried 259 emigrants, most of whom were clearance victims. They were brought to Australia under the Reverend John Dunmore Lang's scheme. So did anything eventful happen during that voyage? Sadly, yes. Fever and dysentery made their appearance about five weeks into the voyage. The ship's medical superintendent was Dr Robert Stewart. In an effort to combat the disease, he stopped all animal food, prescribed extra sugar and doubled the oatmeal ration. No fever cases occurred after November. No male adults died but there were 24 deaths of women and children. 18 of these were very young. James' son, George, died at this time. This must have been quite a distressing event for James and Mary. George was only six years old. Yeah, well, that's very sad. Any, anything else notable about this particular voyage? Yeah, most of the Highlanders on the Midlothian only spoke Gaelic. The doctor spoke their language and was well acquainted with their customs. The Reverend William McIntyre was chosen by the Committee of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland on Colonial Churches to accompany them and to provide for their spiritual care. Every Sunday during the voyage of 127 days, he preached to the passengers in the morning in Gaelic and to the crew in the afternoon in English. Okay, so if they only spoke Gaelic, did this affect how they would fare when they got to Australia? English was the language of the colony, wasn't it? Yes, English was the official language, and being Gaelic speaking was a big issue. There was a complete unwillingness of the Highlanders to separate from their kinfolk and friends when they arrived in Australia. This became quite a problem for the colonial authorities. Here's an example of the close ties among many of these people. It is the immigrant passenger list of the British King. This ship sailed from the Isle of Mull in October 1838. Of the 332 immigrants on board, 146 bore the same surname, MacDonald. Oh, okay. So uh, what did happen when the Midlothian arrived? The Midlothian sailed through Sydney Heads on the 12th of December 1837. James and his family had arrived in Australia, ready to start a new life. After being cleared at anchor in Neutral Bay for diseases and such, the passengers disembarked at Port Jackson and they were taken to the immigration building. They shortly after became the subject of controversy. They refused to be split up, as had happened with the two previous government-assisted migrant shiploads. 
They claimed that the government had promised to settle them as a community with their own minister. They were a community with their own customs, different to the English. As an example, on the first Sunday after disembarking, the Midlothian passengers attended the first non-English-speaking church service held in Australia. That's discounting any Catholic Latin masses, of course. It was a Gaelic service in the Scots Church of Sydney. The government eventually decided that, although no such undertaking had been given, if any local landholder was willing to take them as a body, they would be given six months' rations from the Queen's store and free passage to the estate in question at public expense. The problem was solved when John Dunmore Lang's brother Andrew undertook to settle the whole shipload on his estate. Andrew was a Scottish settler in the Hunter River. Andrew was the only one willing to take them, so a large number of the Midlothian families settled at Dunmore, near Paterson, that's uh, north of Maitland in the Hunter, thus forming the first ethnic enclave in Australian history. Ethnic in this sense meaning non-English speaking and culturally distinct. The Midlothian was apparently a unique case. The fact that the Midlothian was one of the first ships to sail from the Highlands was probably in large part responsible for this occurrence. Right, so James and his family, as we've mentioned, probably only spoke Gaelic. What happened when they uh, arrived in Australia? Yeah, it's clear from the records that the Midlothian immigrants did stick together over the following years. They all seemed to remain along the New South Wales coast north of Sydney, Maitland, Port Stephens and settlements further north. It really does appear that these Scots enclaves stuck together well into the next century. Right, well, you've got us uh, shifting up into the Hunter. What happened to Marx's family then? Well, the immigration record for the Marx family says James was a shepherd, age 30. Mary was a cook with a delicate nature. I, I wonder if she was chronically ill. I mean, consumption was pretty common at the time. And they had two remaining children, William, who was four, and John, who was 18 months old. James fairly quickly obtained employment as a shepherd with Adam Whiteman. The Whitemans were also Scots. Adam was born in Dumfrieshire in Scotland and had been in the colony for a while. He bought two properties in the Hunter, Glenriddle and Glengarry on the Pages River at Mararundi. On this latter property is the burning mountain of Wingen, and that's still there today. So, in 1838, the Whitemans moved from Musselbrook up to Glengarry. It's very probable that James Mark worked as a shepherd on Glengarry. At that time, a shepherd had control of about 500 sheep, which he took out into the paddocks each day. You've got to remember at this time there were no fences built on most of the runs. At that time, a shepherd's wage was about 25 to 40 pounds per year plus food and accommodation. With a conversion of one pound being about $150 today, this is an annual wage of four dollars to $6,000 a year for James to provide for his family. Did you find out what happened to James and his family when they were working for the Whitemans? No, I, I couldn't find out too much about their time there. But one thing I did find out was that a daughter, Isabel, was born on the 21st of October, 1840. The birth was registered in the Dungog Stroud area, which is at the lower end of the Hunter, and Isabel was baptised four months later at Port Stephens, also in the Hunter. 
My guess is that they went down to Port Stephens to find a Gaelic church to have a Gaelic baptism. Another thing I found was that, unfortunately, the bank crash of 1843 broke Adam Whiteman, and he was forced to sell his properties. Adam died just two years later, aged 45. His family struggled for a few years until the White Hart Inn was established by Adam's son Alexander at Murrundi. Publicans' licence was granted to Alex in 1842, and that pub still exists today. Do we know uh, what happens to um, James and his family when the Whitemans sold their property? I can't find any documentation about their fate, but it seems that if the property was sold, James would have been unemployed. So, in about 1843, and this is after just five years in the Hunter Valley, James decides that he wants to become a squatter. Being at Murrundi, he must have seen others going over the Liverpool range there and squatting in the Liverpool Plains and places further afield. This was his chance to own land for the first time, an option he would never have been available to him in Scotland. So how could James become a squatter? If he came out in assisted passage, uh, that suggests he'd have very limited finances and there have to be some expenses in squatting. That is a very good question. I've read somewhere that a squatter needed about 500 pounds, uh, that's about $75,000 today, to survive and prosper as a squatter. There is no way that James could have accumulated that amount of money in just a few years as a shepherd. Either he had a go with very little funds, or he had a silent backer. This is possible as there were many squatters like John Brown who did not live on the runs that they claimed, they employed overseers. We do know that the son of Mark's employer, Alex Whiteman, did eventually become a squatter on the McIntyre at Canopia near modern-day Boomai. But in 1843, the Whitemans were broke, so clearly they couldn't have been James Mark's backer. Right. Uh, how did James go as a squatter? The records of James' first attempt at squatting are really poor. John Watts says he first occupied a station called Yellowroy. Now, in various old records, I found different, six different phonetic spellings options for Yellaroy, and some of these refer to runs or localities or to creeks. It may have been also that uh, James Mark was not actually a squatter. He may have been effectively an overseer. Um, there is a lot of confusion about where this Yellaroy property was. I did find in 1847... Um, that squatters had to obtain licences to depasture stock beyond the limits of location. In the Government Gazette at that time, James Marks is listed as getting a licence at Mundale Creek. But no matter how much I search, I can't find in any of the gazettes a description of that run, Mundale Creek. I've also found that Mundale was spelt differently phonetically in different places. But what I did find was a different squatter, Richard Otley, on a property called Mandau. Now, I've scoured lots of the old maps and squatters' claims. I'm fairly confident that Mundau Creek or Yallaroy or Mandau or whatever you want to call it is somewhere between modern-day Yallaroy and Kulatoy. This place is at about 70 kilometres southeast of Gundy. The 1847 gazettal date is also a bit confusing. Because we know that by 1847, 
James Marks was at uh, Gudar, northwest of Gundawindi, not down at Kulatai. I suspect this is just a case of bureaucratic lethargy. James probably applied for his uh, departure licence in 1843 or somewhere about there, but it only got published in the Gazette in 1847. Uh, didn't John Watts say that um, Aboriginal tax on Marx's shepherd and uh, sheep at Yalroy forced him to abandon the run and move his flocks elsewhere? Yeah. James seems to have had a severe setback with the Camilleroy attacking his shepherds and forcing him off that run. Perhaps this is where James really develops his hatred of Aboriginals. And perhaps he did something there that caused the Camilleroy to want to kill him. Well, James has joined the ranks of the squatters. Uh, he seems to have a bit of a different background to the other squatters we've talked about. Do we know much about them? Well, I think it's time to talk to our historian friend Morris again and see what he says about typical squatters. Morning, Morris. Well, Morris, can you tell us who or what was a typical squatter? Well, in a sense, it's not a typical squatter. You have to begin with what region you're talking about. Uh, in Western Victoria and uh, the Darling Downs and Tasmania, they're generally uh, well-educated, by which means they had some sort of schooling education, uh, possibly attended university for one year as a finishing operation, not for academic purposes. Uh, some of them had, had military experience, especially uh, post-Napoleonic War or Indian Army service experience, a few Royal Navy uh, experiences. Um, They came from what I suppose one would generally call the upper middle classes of Britain, with a few of them having sort of a a hand on the lower levels of the aristocracy in that they might have had in their past a a baronet or, or whatever. The first generation of squatters uh, generally had some capital behind them. They were usually the sons of fairly well-off people in England, usually uh, landholders in Britain, uh, but occasionally um, bankers or some wealthy merchants. And where under British law, you know, that's the eldest son inherited the property, primogeniture. The younger sons had to fend for themselves, basically. And many of them went into the church. A lot of them went into the army and navy. Uh, and some were given their patrimony, that is the money they would, in, would have inherited on their father's death, given it early to go out to the colonies and make good or not. Well, I think that's the John Watts story because John Watts arrives in Australia with £500, which I assume is his early inheritance. But uh, the strange thing with John Watts is he is the oldest son and he should have stayed in England, but I think he was an adventurous lad and... uh well, that's the other thing is some, some people didn't get abused with, with, <laughs> with the spirit of the invention, but that's typical. I mean, the, each of the Leslie, three Leslie brothers had £1,000, which was doing well. Arthur Hodson had £400. Pemberton Hodson, uh, his younger brother, came out with £300, but he didn't stay very long. Mm. In terms of where they could go, would Australia be a well-desired place or were there other options? Again, it's a matter of a family decision to some extent and, and who you knew. Most of the, the studies I've done of the Darling Down squatters, many of them already knew people uh, in government circles in Sydney. They either uh, you know, had prominent merchants, some, were, some were, knew the MacArthur family, um, some were with Governor Gibbs, some was a you know, family 
not 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 family relatives, but had family contacts with the Gibbs family. So that that sort of is the is the you know, the pool factor. So here, the the other choice for them um, is Canada or the United States, and you would only you know, you would only go to the United States if you were really you know sort of a, a capitalist entrepreneur <laughs> to some extent, because it was very it was a risky business going to the to investing in the United States, although. The American railways, of course, were built by British engineers. <laughs> yes. So for our story, we now know that um, most of the squatters who went over the Liverpool range and then headed up over the Gwider and got to the McIntyre originated out of a business community in the Hunter Valley, whether it was Tinker Campbell or Captain Scott or um, John Howe. They all were this clique of British businessmen with money behind them and what have you. We now also know that James Mark was a land-disposed crofter from the Isle of Skye who spoke Gaelic as his primary language and in The Hunter was simply employed as a shepherd working for another fellow. He seems a very unlikely squatter. Yes, he seems very, very atypical of the general squatting movement, um, which suggests probably that something about his character. I mean, the, the, what he attempted to do suggests that he, he was, you know, he, he was a... Prepared to take a risk, uh, and perhaps he had nothing to lose, of course, um, of his limited capital and no, no social back, you know, social contacts and so on. You might, it's a case of, well, I might as well try. And of course, in the, the first try was was frustrated. Un- yes. That probably had some psychological effect on him uh, too. So, but he certainly is atypical. The, uh, certainly, well, certainly of the squatters whom uh, I'm familiar, the Darling Down squatters, mm. uh, who are certainly not in that sort of dispossessed crofter. <laughs> but it is group. easy to understand his ambition because you know if he is a crofter from the Isle of Skye, he would have had no chance ever in his life of owning land or or progressing forward. So, you know, he, he sees others doing it, going over the range at Murrurundi and says, I'm off. Yes, well, that's, that, that's right. And it's not, I mean, this was one of the arguments that, that uh, Governor, Governor Burke and Gipps put forward for bringing in the, the squatting acts was that, you know, as I've already said, the, um, you know, one was revenue raising, you must pay for the use of Crown lands. But the other one, they were genuinely concerned, as were the colonial office in Britain, about so much land being taken up by so few people. Because if, if they were permitted to hold their hundreds of thousands of acres, it was denying other comers, latecomers, access to the land. And uh, right through the 19th century, uh, the one driving force behind all migration, whether it's to Australia, America, Canada, New Zealand, is the desire for land. Hmm. I mean, that's what they wanted, land. Yep. Whether it was you know, 100,000 acres to graze sheep on or 40 acres to grow vegetables on. Cabbages, let's Cabbages, say. as we say. Yes. So they were, you know, it was, it was land that was the driving force. Yeah. And, hmm. uh, of course, something, somebody like Marx, if he remained in England, as did you know, many of the squatters themselves, would not have had a chance of owning their own land. Hmm. So his motivations are easy enough to understand, yeah. but he's starting a long way behind the eight ball. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so James Mark's not a, not a typical squatter. That early failure must have been disappointing for him and his family, and I assume that he did not give up on his desire to own land. No, not at all. In about 1846, he tries again. This time he takes up Gudar on the Weir River. The Gudar run was situated just north of Calendoon and uh, northwest of Gundawindi. So, by September 1847, James is 38 years old, his wife Mary 37, 
His sons, William and John, are 13 and 11, respectively, and Isabel was six. It's very unclear as to whether his wife Mary and daughter Isabel moved to Gudar. Perhaps they stayed behind with other Scottish families in the Hunter until the station was fully developed. This was not an unusual approach. But what is clear is that James had very limited capital. Hence, he had to use his young sons, William and John, as shepherds. This was a tough job for two young boys on the frontier in 1847. His neighbour to the south, between Gudar and Gundawindi, was the Young family. Now it's worthwhile to compare the Marks family with the Young family who we discussed in the previous episode. The Youngs were English, and James Mark was Scottish. I'm not really sure how much uh, friction there was between the two different people there. Jonathan Young, apparently, it's claimed anyhow, had uh, training as a military officer. James was just a poor Highlands crofter, probably with quite poor education. Jonathan Young had 10 years' experience as a manager of a large squatting run and had assets that he brought to Gundawindi. James Mark, as we know, um, was a new manager with very limited resources. In 1847, Jonathan was quite mature at 49 years old. James was just 38. And one big difference is that Jonathan had a considerable respect for the Aboriginal people who worked on Umbercolly. This is similar to Tinker Campbell, who we've discussed previously. By contrast, James Mark had a hatred of Aboriginals. And this is similar to Captain Scott, who we discussed previously. Okay. So just to summarise, by uh, September 1847... James Mark and his family had been forced out of their home on the Isle of Skye and uh, migrated to Australia. During the voyage, they lost a son, George. And then after a few years in the Hunter Valley as a shepherd, James tried his hand as a squatter on the McIntyre but was forced out of that area by the Camilleroy folk. Uh, about 1846, he tried again setting up a run at Gouda, north of Gundy but James had limited capital, so he was using his sons as shepherds. Yes, and James had a strong connection with other Scottish immigrants to Australia. However, he really doesn't seem to have a good relationship with his English neighbours, the Young family, at least based on Margaret Young's account. So, we've set the scene for what happens in the future. In the next episode, the murders begin. Yes. We would like your views on this topic. Do you have a similar story in your family tree? If so, please contact us on email or comment on our Facebook page. Contact details are on our webpage, which is www.todaysstories.com.au. Full details of the story are available on the website. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast. For this podcast, the hosts were Greg and Peter... Researchers by Peter and Morris. Voice actors were Mark, Denise and Mick. The original music and sound engineering is by Pete. And IT Solutions by Shelley. Thank you for listening.